for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. I suppose we explained it to the kids in that this is how we started. People were selling out at that point and we bought cows and heifers. And, you know, I'd rather have the auction today and our cows and heifers go to someone else's farm, build their dream with our, what would have been our cattle, than just to have to sell them all for beef because that's the the only other option. Milk can be kind of inscrutable. A typical consumer shops at a Kroger or a Walmart or some other big box and grabs whatever carton they can afford. They rarely think about the cows that have to be milked twice a day, every day. They almost never think about how input costs like feed and fuel and electricity keep rising as milk prices plummet. But you, gravy listener, you're not a typical consumer. You embrace the Wendelberry dictum that eating and drinking are agricultural acts. If dairy farmers had their backs up against the barn wall, you'd want to know. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. This week, reporter and producer Allison Salerno embedded with two dairy women on the fringe of a 200-person town in southeast Georgia to understand their lives and their work and the profound challenges they now face. It's the first day of spring, and the wind is so strong in Garfield, Georgia, it chaps your hands. Colin and Neef Matthews are auctioning their dairy farm, 700 Holstein cows and all their farm equipment. That includes tractors, loaders, feed mixers, and a 5,000-gallon milk tank. Colin and Neve immigrated to the United States 16 years ago from Ireland to chase their dream of owning a dairy farm. They both grew up on farms, and they earned college degrees in agriculture in the United Kingdom. They started Fardia Farm in Garfield 11 years ago with 17 cows they had bought at auction. I've always loved working with cows. There's nothing about cows I don't like. I like the smell of them. I like the sight of them. I like handling them. I like working with them. You know, there's been times... Even this morning, at five o'clock, Colin called me and he said, uh, there's calves out all over the place here. Someone broke the fence last night. And other people might get annoyed if they get called out at five o'clock in the morning. I just got dressed, came over, we put them back in. Garfield, Georgia's population is 203. It's miles from everywhere, more than an hour drive south of Augusta. It's easy to lose your way to the farm. Cell service is sporadic and Wi-Fi infrequent. I got lost more than once on my way to Fardia Farm. I stopped at a gas station that also serves as a kind of general store to ask directions. Uh, right here or go straight? Right, straight down 23 North. Okay. Then look at your odometer. When you hit two miles, you're going to be there. The plight of the Matthews family is common all over Georgia. Family dairy farms are closing, and auctioneers are selling cows to bigger dairy operations. Dozens of folks showed up for the Matthews auction. Irvin Yoder, a Mennonite pastor and auctioneer, opened with a prayer. Everyone bowed their heads. 
Now, God, we ask for your presence here today. We pray, God, that you would bless the sellers, bless the buyers, bless each one as we go through this sale. May all go well. Vera Newberry is executive director of Georgia Milk Producers, a post she's held since 2002. Back then, there were 500 dairy farm families in Georgia. Only 160 remain, and Newberry knows each family well. Over the years, she has gone to a good number of auctions, but could not bring herself to go to the Matthews auction. In my 16 years with Georgia Milk Producers, this is probably the saddest time I've ever experienced. Our dairy producer meetings are very depressed. We have experienced four years of really low milk prices, and it's just uh, very hard for them to stay positive right now. And so we're trying to do whatever we can as an organization to um, see what other options are out there and anything that we can change le legislatively that will support our producers. The thing about dairy farming is it is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. You are milking cows twice a day, every day. You don't, many of them, the smaller guys, do not take vacations. They're at home seven days a week. They don't get a break. So it's really hard to put all this energy and money and time into a business that's not making a profit. I looked for Neve inside the auction tent. I'd heard she was eight and a half months pregnant with her fourth child. I didn't see her. After the auction started, I found her outside, herding the cows toward the tent. After she finished with the cows, Neve sat down at her desk in the barn and talked about her dedication to dairy farming. Her 11-year-old son, Oshin, stood beside her. But it is a, a labor of love is the only way to describe it because you know, there's there's days when it's a hundred and something degrees and you don't want to be out in that heat, but you still do it. And then there's mornings when everything is frozen up solid in the winter and you come and chip away the ice and defrost everything and get everyone fed and watered no matter what. Um, and we've enjoyed doing it for as long as we've done it. But milk price right now is low and has been low and we're just not in a position to be able to continue to lose money just to do what we like to do. So we had to come to the decision that was gonna be best for all of us. So we decided that we would um, hold this auction and sell. It's not just low milk prices that are driving family dairies out of business. Newberry explains. We've seen quite the decline of dairy farms in North Georgia because of um, urban encroachment. And we've seen the shift down of growth in South Georgia. Another reason why we've lost our dairy farm families here in Georgia is due to people just aren't drinking milk like they have in the past. People aren't eating breakfast at home anymore like they used to. Levi Russell is an assistant professor of agricultural and applied economics at the University of Georgia. He visits beef, poultry, and dairy farmers across the state, and he advises them on trends and how to keep their businesses viable. He says that most of the factors putting the squeeze on dairy families are far beyond their control. One of the underlying trends is increased mechanization, increased use of robotics and things like that for milking. And so we're seeing a trend towards a smaller number of larger dairies producing a larger and larger percentage of the total milk production of the U.S. And so what's happening is dairies that are growing in size are driving down the production cost and driving down labor costs and, and usage of labor really and making it difficult for medium-sized and smaller dairy operations to compete. 
Oshin watched his mother as Neve talked about the auction. When I asked him, he said he loves growing up on his family farm. And when prompted, Oshin says he doesn't plan to go into farming himself. He was born and raised in Georgia, which explains why his accent is so different than his mom's. I've seen how much work it takes, and I also wonder, well, what if I get in the same situation that they're in right now? If I worked for it all, like they did, and then it doesn't turn out good, I think I wouldn't be able to hold it together like they could. Two weeks after the auction, Neve gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Nessa. She and her husband are still sorting out how to make a living, but a few things are clear. They're staying in Garfield. They want to keep working in agriculture. Also, Neve is continuing with a project she started with two friends called Weekend Blessings. She didn't mention this work to me, but Farrah Newberry did. 40% of children in Emanuel County live in poverty. They're eligible for free breakfasts and lunches at their public schools, but often go hungry over the weekends. Weekend Blessings offers them backpacks filled with meals and snacks, so they have something to eat on Saturdays and Sundays. We have lost a lot of jobs and businesses in our rural areas. They aren't able to find the jobs that they need to support their families. They're stuck there in those communities. They don't, a lot of them don't even have access to Wi-Fi or broadband, so um, they just are kind of out of touch with society and, and have, find it very hard to move ahead in those communities. So a program like Neves is able to give back and hopefully provides a future for those kids. Up next, how one family farm in Georgia manages to survive and thrive despite the challenges. Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge cast iron support of this podcast, we say thanks. Southern Swiss Dairy sits on 1,000 acres in rural Burke County, Georgia. On my drive from Athens, logging trucks loaded with freshly cut pines dominated the two-lane highways. Fields of row crops alternated with pine forests, punctuated by an occasional Baptist or Mennonite church. I first visited Southern Swiss Dairies a few days after the Fardia Farm auction. Owner Ginny Franks cried more than once during our hour-long conversation. Ginny calls Neve Matthews a neighbor, even though the two women live about 25 miles apart. Ginny is 58 and a fifth-generation dairy farmer. I can imagine what she was going through. So I think that's why it hurt me so bad. Ginny was born in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. She grew up on a dairy farm her uncle owned. In 1972, when Ginny was 12, the federal government carved Interstate 40 right through generations of farmland outside Asheville. The family bought a dairy farm in South Carolina and moved their lives and their herd. 
Jeannie left home to go to college at the University of Georgia. She earned a bachelor's degree in agriculture and then a master's degree. But when she finished school, there wasn't enough work back on the family farm. It was hard. My brother was back at the farm too, at my parents' farm. He was running commodities, trucking, um, probably the prices of milk. You know, I, maybe it was a swing at that time. It just was hard to float us all on the family. And since my brother was already back there, I, I left. Jenny found work managing dairy farms in Georgia. She fell in love with a beef farmer and they married. Together, Jimmy and Ginny bought land from a Mennonite farmer in Burke County. They raised their four children there. Farron Newberry says consumers don't think about farmers like the Franks, the folks who produce the food and milk we buy. People just want cheap food. Um, when they go to the grocery store, price still trumps. The thing is, farmers don't get to decide how much they sell their raw, unpasteurized milk to processors for. Since the 1930s, the federal government has set minimum prices that dairy processors have to pay dairy farmers. The idea was to strike a balance between farmers earning fair prices on their milk and consumers being able to afford to buy milk for their families. But as the years went on, milk processing plants got bigger. That meant farmers had fewer places to sell their milk. And milk, after all, isn't something you can store. It has to be sold quickly. Farmers scramble to unload their milk, even when the price is low. The producers are at the mercy of the processors. The Franks family coped with wildly fluctuating milk prices for years. They had a hard time breaking even, so nine years ago they decided to bottle their own milk right at the farm and sell it directly to the public. They opened Southern Swiss Dairy in 2010. The only way to sustain our dairy was to get into bottling milk. We, we know why we're doing it. You know, while we're milking the grocery stores, $2 a gallon, we're getting four, $4.50 for it. So it's, you know, some people don't mind paying the price, and luckily we're able to make a living at it. Southern Swiss Dairy, about that name. Their herd of cows is brown Swiss. It's a breed of cattle, originally from Switzerland. When the Franks were part of a milk co-op, Selling raw milk to milk processors, their milk was poured into a tanker with milk from two or three other farms, and their milk tasted like, well, the milk we're used to tasting from the grocery store. Southern Swiss milk has a wonderfully distinctive flavor because it contains, on average, 4% butterfat. In comparison, whole milk at the grocery store has 3.25% butterfat, and skim milk is 2% butterfat. Still, sometimes the forces of nature are hostile. A few years into bottling, just as they were turning a profit, a tornado tore through southern Swiss dairy. Their barn was flattened. The Franks heard of 150 cows trapped underneath. Ginny and her husband crawled through the wreckage to save the cows. Neighbors came from miles away to help. I knew it was probably unsafe for us to be under there, but we're under there trying to get them out. We're calling neighbors. They got the word out. They were eight. Everybody was here. It was raining cats and dogs. The power was out, so we had, you know, how could we eat milk? You know, people worked here till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We got all the cows out from under the barn. The Franks rebuilt and recovered from the tornado. Southern Swiss remains a family-owned and operated business. They pasteurize, process, and bottle milk products the same day the cows are milked to ensure consumers have the freshest milk possible. So what is the future of family dairy farms? Dr. Russell, the University of Georgia professor, says families like the Franks are on the right track. 
family dairy farms will have to carve a niche in an increasingly chaotic market. All of these things together are really making it tougher for areas like Georgia that have a lot of these sort of smaller and medium-sized dairies that harder for them to compete on this sort of open market and it's creating a need for them to differentiate in some sense or to find other lines of production, for instance, you know, moving into beef cattle or something like that. Farrah Newberry agrees and explains that value-added dairy products can help a family farm stay afloat. So can agritourism. Some of the options for our smaller guys, of course, is bottling your own milk on farm or producing some type of specialty product like cheese. Um, we have a grazing dairy outside of Thomasville, Georgia, that um, makes yogurt and they actually sell their products to Publix and Kroger and Whole Foods. Um, but a great deal of our farmers, our smaller guys, are making, adding some income to their farms from tourism. So they actually offer on-farm tours and try to do an educational experience for schools in that they're able to raise some money that way. The people who can save family dairy farms might be found at places like a busy student cafeteria at Emory University in Atlanta. Bon Appetit Management, a California-based company, is the college's food service vendor. It buys 900 gallons of milk a month from Southern Swiss Dairy for its chefs. Students can also buy a bottle of Southern Swiss to go with their meals. The bottles sit next to a sign reminding them to shake the unhomogenized milk. Sam Leonard is a community partnership manager for Bon Appetit. She works with chefs and farmers to find local and sustainable food to serve in Emory's dining halls. The reason that buying local is so important to us and Emory is to invest back into our communities, to these families who have such a passion and are good stewards and practice sustainable agriculture and treat their animals right. And I think that is a trend that's, especially in Atlanta and the southeastern region, it's becoming more important to people. Allison Salerno, an independent writer and producer based in Athens, Georgia, brought us this story. Special thanks to Kathy Bradbury, Julie Alexander-Davis, and Greg Trevor. Music for this episode is by Woody Sullender. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Monique Laborde. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. For gravy resources, including photos from this episode, visit southernfoodways.org. While there, please consider a donation. Your financial gifts of any amount make gravy and all other SFA work possible.